Last week I began a three-week series on what it means to be human. I mentioned last week that we must no longer assume that people know the right answer to that question. What does it mean to be human? Uh, We shouldn't necessarily assume that people outside the church or inside the church have an accurate understanding of what it means to be human. Because we live in a time of expressive individualism, where your job is to find yourself, or even to find your true self. And to be clear, I hope, I, I really hope, I really hope that everybody here does find their true self. But I would argue that you're not going to find your true self by looking within yourself. You're not going to find your true self by going on a long pilgrimage deep into the wilderness. You're not going to find your true self by traveling to some exotic monastery um, or even just by staring really, really deeply into your bathroom mirror. None of those are an effective route for finding your true self. You can only find your true self by looking into Scripture, by looking into the mirror of God's Word. I've been teaching all this material to the teens now for several months But this truth is crucial for all of us. All of us need a vigorous, strong, robust, biblical understanding of what it means to be human. And it needs to be more than just knowledge that fills our brain. It needs to be conviction that we believe with every part of our being. It needs to be truth that we are willing to live for and die for. So what does it mean to be human? Uh, I get three weeks, again, to teach our church on this subject. And we're looking at the topic from three different angles. As a human being, how should I see myself? So we did last week. This week we're talking about as a human being, how should I see God? And at the end of the month, we'll talk about as a human being, how should I see others? Last week we considered how should I see myself as a human being? And I argued that that in order to answer that question, we must go to the source We must learn from God what it means to be human. After all, again, I argued that the one who made you should get to define you. And why is that? Why is it that we don't get to define ourselves? It's because we don't know ourselves. We don't understand ourselves. We don't truly understand ourselves. Not like God knows us and not like God understands us. Last week we studied Psalm 139 and we saw that God knows you infinitely better than you know yourself. He knows you personally and meticulously. He knows every thought you think. He knows everywhere you go. He knows everything you do. He knows every word you say. He knows you. He planned and wrote the story of your life. You were not an accident. You did not happen by chance. So let the one who made you define you. Let the one who understands you better than you understand yourself tell you who you are. Last week, according to Psalm 139, we learned that as a human, you are wonderfully made. You're wonderfully made by God, and you're wonderfully made for God. That's part of how we as human beings should see ourselves. So when you look in the mirror, that's, that's the type of thing that you should think of. You look in the mirror, and you should think that about yourself. I am wonderfully made by God, for God. And as we're going to talk about today, I'm wonderfully made by God, for God, and in the image of God. 
This week, we're going to go deeper into what it means to be made in the image of God as we answer the question, how should I, as a human being, see God? And even more importantly, as a human being, how does God see me? In a couple of weeks, we're going to answer the question, how should I, as a human being, see others? Because the reality is that, that you are wonderfully made by God, for God, in the image of God. And so is every other person you have ever met or ever will meet. Every human soul is precious and priceless, and Christians must affirm and defend the dignity, the worth, and the value of all people, even if they are different than us, even if they are weaker than us, and even if they don't like us. Christians who submit their lives to the Bible's teaching will see every other human being as profoundly valuable and intrinsically deserving of respect and honor. Let's pray. God, you are our creator. You are the one who wove us together in our mother's womb. You planned out every day of our lives long before we drew our first breath. You, God, are the source of life itself. And all of our value, all of our worth, all of our dignity, it all comes from you. So God, we ask that you would give us this morning the grace to see ourselves more accurately than we have seen ourselves before. That you would help us to see you more accurately than we have seen you before. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we answered the question, as a human being, how should I see myself? Let me point out that some of the smallest words in that answer on that screen, some of the smallest words there are actually some of the most important. The prepositions in that sentence matter. I'll just tell you, it's, it's by and it's for. Those are the two prepositions that are really important. They matter. You need to know those prepositions, and you need to think about those prepositions. You were made by God. You did not create yourself. You did not happen by accidents. You were made by God. God made you. But not only were you made by God, you were also made for God. So last week we talked about how, how David sings. And in this verse, verse 14 of Psalm 139, he says, I praised you, God, because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. He's, 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 he's marveling at God's design and, and, and uh, making of himself as, as God wove him together in his mother's womb. He's, he's reflecting on how God made him, and he's using it to actually respond to God and say, God, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And the whole Bible echoes that we are made by God and for God. I'll give you a couple examples. Romans eleven thirty six says, for more prepositions. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. The end of all things, it's God. All things are from God, through God, and to God. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the creator, God. We were made by Jesus and for Jesus. And then Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things by your will. They existed and were created. Everything that is exists by God and for the glory of God. So if I'm made by God and for God, then the next logical question is, well, then how should I see God? How should I relate to God? Um, and maybe more importantly, as a human being, how does God see me? So here, where we've been in Psalm 139, 
David stands in awe with how God made him. David stands in awe of how God made him in Psalm 139. We're looking at Psalm 8, and in Psalm 8, David marvels at why God made him. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 starts, I love how this one commentator puts it, verse 1 starts with, quote, robust, full-throated, unrestrained praise of God. He's just, he's just opening up. He's just letting it loose. And he, and he praises God right from the start, saying, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then he says in verse 3, he says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You can almost picture David standing on his palace, top of his palace in the dead of night, gazing up at a clear Middle Eastern sky, exploding with stars. David didn't have a telescope, I don't think. He had no way of knowing the seemingly endless universe is teeming with hundreds of billions of galaxies and yet David as a shepherd and as a warrior he would have had, he would have memorized the night sky as a map he knew full well as verse uh, as 19 chapter 19 verse 1 says he knew full well that the heavens declare the glory of God and in verse 1 in this chapter chapter 8 that God has set his glory in the heavens he knew full well that God is great, so mighty, so majestic that the stars are like, as he puts it, the work of his fingers. And I just, I just want you to think about that for a moment. I want you to think about uh, how we should respond to that if we're actually thinking it through. And I want to extend your reflection on this for a second by pointing out that things like the ocean, if you're standing by the ocean, or better yet, if you're in the middle of the ocean, things like the ocean make us feel small. The Grand Canyon, if you've been there, it makes us feel small. A raging lightning storm with earth-shattering thunder makes us feel small. But all of those things that make us feel small, those are all things on our planet. What happens when we turn our gaze and, and direct it, instead of things that are actually around us here, and actually direct that gaze out into the, the depths of the universe, what if we gaze in the heavens or even just our closest star, the sun, which is about 93 million miles away, blazing at over 9,900 degrees Fahrenheit? And that's just one star. It's just, scientists tell us, it's a rather average-sized star. God made that. He spoke it into existence with words. And he made about 200 billion trillion other stars as well with words. Do you feel the weight of David's question here? Oh God, when I look at the heavens, the sun and the moon that you've placed in the sky, what is man? You are mindful of him. What are we that you, God, are mindful of us? We are, as one author quipped, as humans, we are creatures, roughly five or six feet tall, with two eyes, two ears, one nose. We are confined to the ground. 
We don't have wings. We're unable to swim, at least in deep water, for a long time. We're small, non-flying, ungilled beings. And on top of that, we're weak and frail and puny. Our time on earth is like a withering flower. We're here today and gone tomorrow. We're just a passing breeze, a gust of wind that comes and it goes. Our bodies decay and turn to dust. We're like a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. What are we? That the eternal, all-sufficient, glorious, majestic, almighty, holy God who creates and controls quasars and black holes should treat us as anything other than a tick or a mosquito or a cockroach. Parasites that take from him but can never give back. Because compared to God, we are nothing. There is nothing that we can offer God. There is nothing that he needs from us. But look at verse 5. David knew what it means to be human. He knew how he should see God, but he also knew how he should see himself. After just reflecting on the, the endless depths of the nighttime sky, without telescope, he could have easily seen, without light pollution, 2,000 or more stars in the sky, not even aware of how much more was beyond his ability to see at the time. And yet just understanding how small he is when addressing the God who made all of that, he's profoundly humbled. But part of what humbles him is not just the fact that God is great and he is small, but it's how the God who is great has treated the one who is small. Look at verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. See, David, David knew that we were made in the image of God. His language right here, it arises right out of Genesis 1 that states that we are made in the image of God. And today we're going to study what that means. We want to learn not just how we should see ourselves, but also how we should see and how we should relate to God. If you, if you were to want to get to know me, know who I am, you would probably want to start by learning my story. You know, learn about where I was born, where I grew up, what's happened in my life, because those are the things that have made me who I am. But on a deeper, more global level, if you're going to understand the human story, the story of us as humans, you need to know why we're here. You need to know where we're going and where we came from. And the Bible, from cover to cover, is one big story. It's the story of humanity. It's the true story and right now, our society, and, and honestly, probably people here today, our society, people all around us, are suffering a human identity crisis. We have forgotten who we are, and we need to recover the true story. I'm going to present it this morning in four parts. Part number one is image made. Part number two is image shattered. Part number three is image retained. Part number four is image restored. So part number one, image made. 
God made two kinds of humans, male and female, to reflect and represent him in the world. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, it's after the table of contents, it's after the preface, a few other introductory pages, and it's the first page that's actually God's word. Genesis chapter 1. We're not going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to be pointing out some specific verses. Similar to last week, um, the approach to this message is different from um, how we normally do messages. Normally, at Tri-County Bible Church, we'll take a passage, and we, we come to this passage, and we ask, what is the main point of this passage? And that is healthy for our church, for that to be our normal diet. What we're doing in this study is, is, is an exercise in systematic theology. We're going to these passages, and we're asking a question of the passage. So last week, we looked at Psalm 139. We asked the question, what does this passage teach me about what it means to be human? And today, we're looking at these passages like Psalm 8 and first couple chapters of Genesis. And we're saying, what do these passages teach us about how we should see God and how we should relate to God? So I'm going to be pointing out a few different verses, but at least for the first one, we'll look at the first one. So Genesis chapter 1, the Bible begins with the pronouncement that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In fact, he created everything, and it was all good. In fact, it was so good that the Bible records repeatedly just how good it was over the course of that first chapter. But then at the pinnacle, at the climax, at the, the apex, the grand finale of God's wondrous creation, God makes a special creature. It's a special created being to be his honored representative and ruler in this beautiful and perfect paradise. Look at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Not only are we wonderfully made by God and for God, we are also made in the image of God. You are wonderfully made by God, for God, in the image of God. And it is on this basis that you have profound worth and value and dignity. Psalm 8 says that humans are uniquely crowned with glory and honor. That there's actually something glorious about humans distinct from both animals on earth and angels in heaven. But what does it actually mean to be made in the image of God? We know from the Bible that that God is spirit, um, which means that separate from the incarnation, God does not have a body. So for God to make us in his image is somehow related to making something invisible suddenly visible. We also know that the two terms that are used here in verses 26 to 27, the term for image and the term for likeness, um, these terms are are used interchangeably in the Bible. Um, So there's no notable difference between what it means when it says we're made in um, the image of God versus after the likeness of God. Both of those ideas, those are, are swapped out, used synonymously and interchangeably throughout the Bible. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God or after the image of God? I'm going to suggest three things. That I think that the image of God is referring to. The image of God could be referring to our unique qualities which distinguish us from animals. Our unique qualities which distinguish us from animals. That could include things like the ability to use reason and logic, our inherent morality and our sense of right and wrong, 
and our appreciation of truth, of beauty, and creativity. That's one of the things that I think is involved in what it means to be made in the image of God. It's that that we actually have unique qualities that are distinct to us, actually distinguish us from from animals and, and in some cases even angels. Inherent qualities that these are ways in which we are like God. Second one is our capacity for relationships with each other and with God, our ability to extend love and to receive love. So number one, unique qualities which distinguish us from other, other things created by God. Number two, our capacity for relationships with each other and with God. And then number three, our simply being the image as we exist in the created order and represent God as his divinely appointed vice regents, exercising dominion over the creation and imitating God in our behavior. So the first one, unique qualities, things that are just inherent about us, ways that we resemble or things that are like us, that are like God, that are separate from other things that are created. Things like our morality, our reason, our creativity, all those things. But then it's also our ability to have relationships, relationships with God, relationships with each other. But then even on top of that, there's something that's just intrinsic in us that we are the image of God. And so if I lose my mental ability, my ability to reason, uh, my ability to exercise logic, the image of God is not lost from me because there's something that's just in my very nature as just existing as a human, that that itself is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. But then there's another level to that where I am the image of God, but then as I'm actually doing what God has told me to do as an image bearer, exercising dominion in this world, exercising stewardship of creation, um, representing God as, as his authority here on earth, those are all ways in which I am imaging God. So it could be something that's actually innate to us, just a quality about us. It could be our relationships, or it could be what we do as image bearers in creation. Now, what I just did is I just summarized a whole lot of church history and a whole lot of viewpoints on what it means to be made in the image of God. Different theologians through church history have held to one of those three views or variations on those three views. And I think that of all these positions and the variations of them, um, I think that that it's actually helpful to look at all of them as expressing some way in which we are made in the image of God. We are made in the likeness of God. So therefore, any and every way in which we are like God is that likeness. You are the image of God. And you showcase likeness to God by your morality, by your relationships, and by merely existing in the world. The the third category, the picture is given of like a conquering king might set up a statue to, um, that's, that's bearing his likeness. You know, he comes in, he, he conquers an area, he erects a statue that it, it shows his face, it, it lets everyone know in the region who's in charge. And there's an aspect in which when God made the world, he filled the world with people who bear his likeness, who represent and reflect his authority in the created world. What's notable is to image God, it's inevitable for us. It's, it's who you are. It's, it's what you are. In fact, as an image bearer, you can't not image God. You're not going to do it perfectly. We're going to get into that. But it's, it's part of what it means to be human. God made humans to be sort of like mirrors, reflecting and resembling and representing their creator in the creation. 
And that's why right after God finished creating the first humans, the world was not just good. After he made the humans, he said, this world, it's very good. So part one, image made. Part two, image shattered. In the moments that humans rebelled against God, their ability to reflect and represent God perfectly was ruined. The very good world did not stay good for long. Your Bible is still open. Look at chapter 3. There's two critical lies that Satan feeds one of the first humans, Eve. The first lie is in verse 4, you will not die. The second lie is in verse 5, you will be like God. Genesis 3 records how Satan, in the form of a serpent, approaches Eve and asks in verse 1, did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Eve responds in verse 2, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Verse 4, Satan, in the form of the snake, practically sneers and says, you will not surely die. God's trying to keep something from you. He's scared that you might become like him, knowing good and evil. I just want you to pause for a moment and reflect on that. Satan's just fed Eve two fatal lies. The first is that she will not die. Yes, Satan is tempting her to turn against God, the very source of life. What does she think is going to happen? She cuts herself off from the source of life. And then the second lie is that by, by eating the fruit, Eve, Eve might become like God. And yet God has already made Eve after the likeness of God. She and Adam are more like God than anything else in all of creation. But Eve swallows the lies. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam and Eve were made to reflect and represent God in the creation, and yet in this moment, they decided that it wasn't enough to reflect God. They wanted to be God. And in that moment, the image of God in Adam and Eve, and therefore all of their descendants, was horribly shattered, which leads to the third point, image retained. Despite being warped by sin, humans continue to reflect God in the world, which is why every human life is so precious and why every human life is accountable to God. John Calvin taught that the image of God is not totally annihilated, but it is now frightfully deformed in every human being. God created us in his image so that we would represent his authority and his goodness and his love in this world. And yet all the ways that we image God today are now corrupted by sin. We still image God. It's who and what we are. We cannot avoid it. But what we now display is a distortion of God's character. It's almost like we've become carnival mirrors. We're reflecting lies and partial truths about God. Yet even though humanity no longer reflects and represents God perfectly, even though we're warped by sin, we still are the image of God in the world. In fact, that's the reason. That's the reason why it has been a profound Christian conviction for hundreds and hundreds of years that every single life has value. It's because we're made an image of God and even post-fall, even after sin, even still struggling with sin, we still are the image of God. That's why every human life has worth. It's why every human life has value. Every human life has dignity. There's three passages that clearly teach us. If you flip to Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, we see the image passed on from Adam to his descendants. Verse 1 says, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. 
Verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And then following verses show the genealogy that, that ensues. So the image is then passed down to the generations. If you flip to Genesis chapter 9 and just look at verse 6, long after the image was shattered in the garden, God declared to a guy named Noah that human life should be protected and justice should be dealt against any person who commits murder because they're attacking the image. Even though it's badly damaged, every human still images God. We see the same thing in the New Testament, in James chapter 3. James chapter 3, verse 7, James rebukes those who curse people who are made in the likeness of God. We're to respect the image even in how we speak to each other because every person is still an image bearer of God, a representative of God. But not only does this point to the value of human life, it also points to the responsibility of human life. It points to the value of human life. It also points to the responsibility of human life. A couple of years ago, I was talking to an unsaved friend about the gospel. Um, he's a good friend. Um, I'm thankful for him. We see things very differently. We have completely different worldviews. We've had a lot of, lot of good conversations over the years. A lot of conversations over a long period of time. But one of the questions he raised was this. Why will God punish me for not worshiping him? We had looked at Romans 1.18 that says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. My friend asked this question. He said, how is it right for God to be at war with me when I don't feel like I'm at war with God? He actually likened it to the terrorist attacks on 9-11. He said, quote, all of a sudden we woke up that day and we found out that there were some really angry people on the other side of the world who we had never heard about but who apparently really hate us and want to kill us. He said, how is that different from God being angry with me? I'm not angry with God. Why can't he be content to just live and let live? Why can't he accept that maybe I have come up with a different and arguably better purpose than his original design? I think it's a, I think it's a good question. I think there's a good answer. And I think that the answer goes back to the question, what does it mean to be human? And specifically, the reality that we are made in the image of God and we still bear that image. Because one of the implications from this point right here, image retained, is that every human life has value from God. But the other implication is that every human life is responsible to God. I I really appreciate how one of my professors, Sam Waldron, um, expresses it. He says, our representation of God is either accurate or slanderous, but never morally neutral. Our representation of God is either accurate or slanderous, but never morally neutral. This being so, God can never be indifferent to wicked behavior. He is committed to clear his good name and avenge himself upon those who persist in misrepresenting him. In the illustration of the terrorists, their anger against our nation was unfounded, even if it was consistent with their ideology. But we had not wronged them, nor did we deserve that sort of horrific attack. And yet God made us. We belong to him. We exist for him, and everyone around us belongs and exists for him. You are made in his image, and yet if you live in rebellion against his authority, your very existence is a denial of the God who made you and for whom you were made. You exist to represent God, but instead you misrepresent God. 
And God in his holy justice is not okay with that. If you want to live independent of God, that is fine. Just don't use anything or anyone who doesn't belong to you. So that's one of the implications. Image retained. Despite being warped by sin, humans continue to reflect God, which is why every life is precious. That's why Christians for centuries have championed the dignity and the value of life and have argued that life has to be protected. But there's also a sense in which because we still bear God's image, that your life is saying something about God. It's either saying something that's true about God or it's saying something that's false about God. And God's not okay with your life saying something that's not true about him. He's committed to clearing his name. Which leads to the fourth point. Image restored. God is on a mission to redeem and restore shattered image barriers into the perfect image of Jesus Christ. In many ways you are. You and me. You and me. We are like shattered mirrors. You still bear God's image, just like broken glass shards still cast a reflection of sorts. And so you still have inherent worth and dignity. But that image is distorted and perverted, and you are incapable of pleasing God in this condition. Furthermore, you can't put yourself back together again. Nothing you can do can restore the image to its original condition. Your good works, you're going to church, you're trying to be a good person, it's all useless effort. Your doctor can't fix you. Your therapist can't fix you. You need God to fix you. You can't fix yourself. But God, being rich in his mercy, offers to remake you as a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. To be remade in the image of Jesus Christ, as Romans 8 and Colossians 3 puts it. This is throughout the New Testament. It's the hope that's constantly held up for Christians. John records in his gospel account that the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. All of a sudden, there was one Adam. We bear his image. It was passed to the generations, to all of us. But it's a broken, it's a shattered image. But now there's a new one who's come, and he's perfect. He's actually the perfect image of God. Writer of Hebrews declares that. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says, God spoke through prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Paul wrote to the church in Rome that those whom he has saved by his grace are predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, Romans 8. Paul warned the church in Corinth that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Here is a church in Colossae. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And amazingly, the Bible says in Ephesians 2 and 3 that, that God takes sinners, he saves them by his grace, He puts them back together again as his workmanship, as his masterpieces. Ephesians 2.10 says, so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. He then gathers all of these remade, forgiven sinners into a community called the church to display his profound wisdom to thousands of worshiping angels. What was creation's, what was, was the intended purpose at creation for humanity? That within the created order, within the created universe, humanity would reflect the character of God. We would represent his rule and authority. And that that when everything and anything looks at humans, their attention would bounce like a mirror, bounce back to God. 
whether that was us looking at each other, whether that was anything in creation, angels themselves looking at us, the attention was supposed to go back to God. And we see this, this full circle redemption in which the original purpose that was, that was hindered and it was obstructed by sin, God is now fulfilling that purpose as he saves people by his grace, as he restores them into the image of Christ and as he puts them into a community in which the angels are looking and they're marveling at the, wonder, at the, at the wisdom of God on display in the church as people who are broken image bearers are progressively being restored to the image of Christ. This is the story of the Bible. This is where we came from. This is where we're going. This is where we are right now. As a human, you are wonderfully made by God, for God, in the image of God. You exist to represent and reflect God. You're also by nature what the Bible calls a sinner. A sinner is someone who's in rebellion against God. You're created to represent and reflect God. and Your sin fatally distorts your ability to do so. You're like a broken mirror, but Jesus, and only Jesus, can redeem and restore you to your created purpose. As I conclude, I want to circle back to where we started in Psalm 8, David's profoundly humble question when he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? We need to know both how we as human beings should see God and how as human beings God sees us. And I think one of the crucial things to connect here is understanding this. If my life truly has value, then why do we still die? Made in God's image. Everything here is is speaking of the worth of humanity, the value of humanity, the dignity of humanity. We read in Psalm 8 that God has crowned us with glory and honor. And yet the reality is that we are all going to die one day. Why is that? I think that most of us who are familiar with our Bibles know that the reason that we have to die is because of sin. Just like God warned Adam and Eve if they transgressed his law, they would surely die. Romans 5.12 echoes that sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Most of us here know that we die because of sin. But have you ever considered why we die because of sin? A few years ago, I read the unexpectedly encouraging book entitled Remember Death, The Surprising Path to Living Hope by Matthew McClough. This is a book that Joe has recommended before. I'm glad to commend it to you again. But within the book, Matthew points out that there's going to come a day when when nobody's, nobody's going to remember your name or your existence. Nobody will care about you. Everyone who did care about you will be dead. Nobody will care about them either. And then generations that come won't care about you, will die. And then future generations won't care about them. Death is our great enemy because death says to us that we actually do not matter. That everything that we're striving for doesn't matter. Everything we try to earn, accomplish, doesn't matter. Death is our greatest enemy. And I appreciate how McAuliffe points out. He says, most of us assume, and this is, this is true of both Christians and non-Christians, most of us assume that human lives matter. Every person has an identity shaped by unique experiences and interests and skills. We have relationships with people who love us and depend on us, people whose lives would be different without us. Because every person is unique, every person is irreplaceable and therefore precious, we typically just assume our importance as humans and we spend our energy trying to distinguish ourselves from one another. We want to be exceptional, to rise above, to get ahead. But death levels the winners and the losers, the rich and the poor, the popular and the outcasts, everyone. 
If death is where we end up, we face a far greater question than whether we rise above our peers. The question isn't whether I distinguish myself from those I live around. The question is this. If my life turns to dust in the end, am I more significant than the stray dog picked apart by buzzards, the goldfish flushed down the toilet, or the cockroach crushed underfoot? Because you see, death is a punishment perfectly fitted to the offense. Death tells us that we are not the center of the universe. We are not indispensable. The world will go on without us. We are not too important to die. Death makes a statement about who we are and the Bible tells us that's its whole purpose. Death says you're less important than you've ever allowed yourself to believe. Death is our greatest enemy. We don't like talking about it, but the reality is every single one of us is facing it unless Jesus returns first. So, so how is there this disconnect between value, honor, dignity, your life has meaning and significance when all of us are facing death? I like how McAuliffe puts it. He says, death says you're less important than you've ever allowed yourself to believe, but the gospel says that you are far more loved than you've ever imagined. You are not too important to die, but you are important enough that God gave you his only begotten son, so if you believe in him, you will not perish but have eternal life. You will not be defined by death. The gospel seen in light of what death means for us tells us we are important because we are loved, not loved because we're important. I started the sermon by asking the question, as a human being, how should I see God? I would suggest this as an answer. As a human being, see God as the source of your life, the source of your worth, the source of your dignity, the source of your value, Sin separates us from God, but through Jesus, we can be restored. When you look at yourself in the mirror, you should think, I am wonderfully made by God, for God. And when you think of God, when you look at God, you should say, God is the source. He's the source of my life. He's the source of my value. He's the source of my dignity. All of that is real for me, but it's derived. I get it from God. If I cut myself off from God, I cut myself off from all of those things. But if I have been united to Jesus, I have those things. Death was a punishment that fit the crime. Satan planted this lie. You're not surely going to die. You're going to be like God. She wasn't okay with being a reflection. She wanted to be God. She's like, I'm too important to die. And so the punishment fit the crime. God says, you cut yourself off from the source of all these things. You're not too important to die. Your life only has value. It only has meaning if it's coming from God. So we as Christians, we need to have this robust, strong, biblical identity in which you and I, we know who we are. We know that we're wonderfully made by God, for God, in the image of God. But we also need this biblical worldview by which we can look at the world and say, we can't have conversations with people about what it means to be human unless we're talking about the source of everything about us that matters. That needs to be our strong conviction. It needs to be saying that we believe deeply within ourselves, things that we're, we're, we're ready to stand for and explain and, 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 and share with other people because this reality is true for everybody. That's one of the things I, I hope you keep coming back to when I say, we are the image of God. You are the image of God, and so is every person you've ever met. The reality is, most people don't know that about themselves. 
but it's true. And the most loving thing we can do is to point them to the God who's the source of all meaning, all value, all purpose. And then, just as a final application, for those of us who are in Christ, it means that death has been conquered. That we're not left in the hopelessness of the questions of Ecclesiastes that says, vanity of vanities, it's all worthless. I'm going to be forgotten. Everything I'm going to do is not going to matter. No, we hear the words the apostle that says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your work is not in vain. And so if you're a tired mom this morning, I want to encourage you, your faithful care of your kids, done for the Lord, is not in vain. And if you're a lonely single and you're fighting all sorts of temptations nobody else knows about, but you're choosing to live for Jesus, even though it's really, really hard, your choices, they're not in vain. If you feel forgotten, if you feel betrayed, if you feel like you're going through the hardest thing you've ever faced, if you have no idea what the future is going to hold, you're not sure how the relationship is going to end up, you're not sure how the bank account is going to end up, but you say, I'm going to commit to being faithful because I know that what I do for Jesus, it's not in vain. The gospel reverses the punishment of death. The punishment of death was perfectly fitted for the crime of saying, God, I can be God, I don't need you. And God says, actually, you have no worth value apart from me. But when we humble ourselves and come through Jesus, all of a sudden, what we know instinctively about ourselves, that there is worth and value to us, we realize it is real. Jesus is redeeming us. The original purpose has been remade. And so set your eyes on Jesus. As a human being, see God as the source of your life, the source of your worth, the source of your dignity, the source of your value, and set your purpose on pursuing him. Let's pray.